Hello and welcome to Estate Matters, the podcast brought to you by Core Communications, the country's leading public relations agency specialising in landed estates and rural businesses. We work with clients across the UK to raise awareness and nurture support and advocacy for their work. This podcast is all about discussing the challenges they face and how effective communications can help. I'm your host, Anna Biles, a broadcaster of nearly 20 years and now a rural affairs specialist at Core Communications. In this episode of Estate Matters, we're joined by Nicola Janus-Harris. Nicola is the Head of Agriculture and Rural Estates at the law firm Trowers & Hamlins. She specialises in commercial and agricultural freehold and leasehold property. Welcome to Estate Matters, Nicola. Thank you. So in this episode, we will be focusing on the topic of reputation management and why professional communicators can be brought in to help during legal matters, to help establish the narrative, to safeguard hard-earned reputations and to manage the media. But first, Nicola, I wanted to get uh, to know you a little bit better and how you came to your law specialism. So out of all of the fields in law that you could have chosen, what was it about agriculture that made you want to specialise in that sector? I've been based in East Devon all my life, went off to university and when I came back, I actually qualified into commercial property. So I gained experience in that but there was a kind of natural transition because a lot of my really big uh, commercial clients were actually landowners and had kind of agricultural needs and it was always that element of the work that really interested me. I absolutely love the countryside and I just found that with my kind of rural clients there was this lovely overlap between where their businesses were actually also their kind of lifestyle choice as well so it was it was really entwined and so I always found it kind of more rewarding. Did you find, I know a lot of people who work in the sector have grown up in the sector, so are farmers' children or maybe who studied agricultural land-based courses. Did you find that put you on a back foot or did you feel like you had catching up to do if you hadn't sort of grown up as a farmer's daughter, for instance? So I was really lucky because where I grew up was in a very small village in East Devon. So a lot of my friends were farmers. Um, You know, my best friend growing up was a dairy farmer. So you just kind of naturally find that you're kind of surrounded by that community. And it was actually part of that that made me make the transition. Because when I went out to networking events, when I'd meet new people, the bit that I really felt like I could talk about was understanding the kind of farming and rural community and it was that bit that I didn't have to work at so I didn't actually feel like there was any real catching up I kind of felt like I spoke the language anyway and it was the same with kind of referrers and and intermediaries that I met we all came from the kind of same background and had that shared passion and interest in the sector so it was just actually a, a really easy win. And now you've been doing this job for years, what do you most love about working in the sector? I love the variety of it. I mean, you don't have a straightforward single farming unit anymore. Pretty much everything that comes across my desk, there are examples of um, diversification on there. So again, still using kind of commercial experience in the background, um, but just the opportunities that you get, you know, at a time when we're looking at sustainability, race to net zero, suddenly this sector has been absolutely kind of propelled into the forefront because natural capital is now playing a really big part. Um, So I love the variety of it. 
I love the community and network. So that's with other rural professionals. You find that people who work in this sector are genuinely passionate about it and love what they do. And just the clients, you know, them having that understanding, it being a family business, it really mattering to them. And all of that based in the beautiful countryside. So I get to go out to some really wonderful places. I do see some wonderful pictures you put on LinkedIn of team days and visiting clients on Dartmoor and things, and it looks lovely. On the flip side of that, as much as I agree with you, people like us who work in the sector do it because we we absolutely love it. But it does have its frustrations as well. What would you say in your role are the things that frustrate you the most? Policy making or not making or changing I feel like we're in this massive transition process at the moment and we're not getting any real clear guidance so for people who are trying to make decisions now that are going to impact in kind of five ten years time we just don't know you know a a policy comes in we have we're ready for elms then there's a conversation and it hits the media we're not going to have elms anymore then flip again and, and we're back To try and plan for anything during that time, it's really, really tough. And I think just generally there's been um, a failure to understand how important the rural um, sector is. So COVID helped in a way because for the first time we didn't have food on our shelves. I think as a society we find that a really hard thing to understand. And now we've actually seen it, you know, so food production and the natural environment I don't think people have recognized sufficiently the value um, that this sector offers but it's it's just hard it's hard to plan for the future when you have no real certainty about what the policy is going to look like do you think part of that failure is also down to this just general disconnect between the general population and understanding of how land is managed and and how food is produced there is a there is a massive lack of understanding and I, I've seen people you know the most successful clients are the ones who are telling their story, getting people engaged. You know, we're not selling the cheapest products, but we're selling the best products. Um, and I think we've been really bad, actually, at getting that message across. There has been a push, you know, that the whole idea of having um, public money for public goods it's having to justify now why you're getting that money, um, what you're going to do for the benefit of the wider community. Um, but I think it's been a very slow uptake on actually, you know, there's lots of things that are outside of our control. Market factors, unpredict- unpredictability of what happens next with policy. But the bits that are within our control, we should be showing, you know, why we can justify the prices that we have, why, you know, the, the products that we produce here are so good um, and and I'm not sure that people have taken up that opportunity yet. Why do you think that is? I mean we know that land managers, farmers are really busy people. They have to work around the weather and like you say lots of other factors but what is it do you think that makes people who manage the land maybe even slightly scared to tell their story about what they're doing, being proud of what they're producing? I think it's a kind of nervousness and fear about how you start to make that connection These kind of um, on-farm days, open days, I think have been absolutely brilliant. They're well-received locally, but, you know, there's so few and far between. I don't think they've grasped the opportunities of social media. The ones that have, you can see the benefit um, and the engagement with kind of local communities and further afield, you know, giving them a presence elsewhere. 
but I think these are not naturally people who know how to shout about things, know what platforms are available to them. Um, so it almost feels too frightening to take the first step. Mm. And I think we see as well with lots of our clients, they understand the job that they do and that's their job but they don't always necessarily understand why that's interesting to other people. So we are producing something and there is a consumer on the other side who actually may not understand what went into producing this thing. So there's, it's, it's, I think it's difficult as well to make people understand that what they do is interesting. It's interesting to other people. Yeah, and I, I know I spoke to um, a lady recently who's just been doing kind of everyday updates of her life on the farm. And she has something now like 200,000 followers. I mean, the, there is that level of interest out there, but it's making that first step of um, putting that story out there. Yeah. Because what seems like a kind of mundane thing or there every day, people just don't don't know that. They don't recognise that. If you've not grown up around it, um, they they just don't appreciate what goes into it. And I think it is that kind of understanding, but it's making that kind of first step into how do you how do you use social media how do we put positive news stories out there about what we're doing email messaging groups so the link from the kind of farm shops but providing the update and the story behind where the food's coming from I think conversely some of the interest groups like the vegan movement have been very effective at utilising social media so if we're going to have a growing concern about the environment and about animal welfare the best thing we could do is show the pictures of the animals in the fields. Um, and people aren't bored about that. They want to see where their food's coming from. Yeah. And I think <clears throat> I think I know the person you're talking about, and I now follow her social media avidly. And sometimes it is just very real pictures of them milking, milking the cows, which, I mean, I grew up around as a dairy farmer's daughter, but you forget most people who drink milk did not grow up around that. And so that's interesting and they love it. And they've become such characters on their social media and people really engage with with that. So, I mean, it's fantastic to see. But as you say, I mean, I think the average age of a farmer is now well into their 60s, isn't it? So it's it's making that, that generation realise that these platforms are are free. Self-publishing is is free to them to go out and, and get their messages out there. That's quite a kind of foreign concept. If you if you've grown up on the on the farms, um, and you're in your kind of fifties, sixties, you're just not as used to picking out the phone and using Instagram or Facebook groups. Um, so it's it's kind of bridging that divide a little bit and having the confidence to do it which sounds daft in a way but it's not being utilized at the moment i know you are great at spotting opportunities of where people should be shouting about the work that they're doing but what sorts of projects are are some of your your clients working on so actually for the first time in a really long time we're seeing much more kind of future succession planning we've been banging on for years to clients to say you know look to the future make sure the next gen are involved and making those kind of key business decisions but I think Covid has changed um, and and has kind of those decisions are now being made and those discussions are now being had so it's a it's quite an exciting time looking towards the future handing down to um, kind of next generation um, diversification projects be that kind of renewable energy or looking at farm shops, very much looking at the product that's produced on site and seeing whether they can further that. So, you know, seeing them kind of milk vending machines or this is um, that's quite a big change over even like the last couple of years. But lots of people are now thinking about making that step and also looking at the natural capital market, biodiversity net gain 
it has opened doors. It's still a kind of very new concept for people, um, but we're seeing particularly the larger estates are looking now at how they can build that into their kind of future planning um, for getting people onto the site, but in a way that promotes kind of environmental growth. And how much do you talk to your clients when they come to you with a project that they're working on, whether that be the diversification or the building of a farm shop? How much do you get across to them that the, the communications aspect of a project in terms of engaging a local community if it's a visible project that it's really important because it must be difficult when people come to you it's a, when they come to you it's obviously a legal matter but making them realize as well that communications is a huge aspect of any project that they undertake I think it depends. Sometimes when it comes to us, it's almost too far down the line. A lot of the kind of planning process has already been done unless we've been supporting on that aspect. Um, however, and, and I think my, my position has changed on this a lot. I probably didn't used to think about that side of it very much myself until I saw it go horrifically wrong for a couple of my clients. Um, And these were matters that I think I I then became aware of the role that you played. And I saw and I managed to put you in touch with these clients. But seeing how quickly social media can be utilised, you know, the kind of hate campaigns essentially um, the misinformation that was out there it wasn't until I saw that directly target some of my key clients that I realised what a huge role it was and how actually if you take that process and you control the narrative of it it can be a much more kind of positive and beneficial spin. But until I'd met CORE, I hadn't appreciated the role of PR in these projects and then seeing what can go wrong, now I see the value of it. So it would actually be now part of my initial conversations that I would have with clients, but I had to be aware of it first. Yeah, and I think that is the difficulty is people not not being aware of the part it plays. But when we talked about social media and people being scared, what you've just described isn't it is a lot of the reasons people get scared because you see these campaign groups that set up against a project or a development and for actually the people whose you know idea that is and concept that is there that it is really hurtful and very damaging isn't it when you start to see a campaign build against a project that you've you've been working on estates and rural clients tend to be kind of geographically based in a location that they are going to they've been there their family's been there all their lives the future generations are going to be there. This is not a case of we're going to carry out a development and then we're going to move and not have any interest in the local community anymore. These are people who have been invested in that local community. So the stakes involved are far higher because who wants to be passing on um, a problem to children of future generation by being a kind of hated local estate? So it's that kind of investment in the actual geographic area. I know I spoke to one estates director and he said, you know, I view my role as custodian of this land. And he said, I'm not going to create a development that I have to drive past every day if I'm not proud of it. And I don't believe it's the right thing for the area that I live in. And they don't want to live in communities where they're hated for something they've done. They want to do development or diversification responsibly, I think, largely. I think that's that's so true because they are invested in that area. It's not just about trying to make the biggest amount of money about it. It's about trying to get the local community involved and on board, trying to be understanding of what it is that they're trying to do. Because, of course, these estates, there's, there's no two ways about it. They need to have different income streams now. You know, it is expensive to, to run these estates. So it's not a kind of nice to have. It's that they have to free up 
money as well but they want to do it in a way where they don't alienate themselves from the local community that they are invested in. Lots of estates when they come to us will tell us that they know they're doing lots of great work whether that's environmental projects or you know projects where they're trying to serve a housing need and their frustration is that people don't hear about it until you said often it's too late and it's because a campaign group has set up um, or there's been some negative press but it's really difficult to make Um, estates and landowners realise early on that the work they're doing is valuable and it is interesting and it's worth I mean we've talked about natural capital and we talk about reputational capital and how important it is to invest in that early on not just at the moment of a big project not just at the moment you're going to put in a planning application but much earlier on talk about your work engage your local community so they understand you and your ethos and what you're doing with your land but it's difficult isn't it to make people um, aware of A, that that's important, but B, that there are people out there that can help them to do that. There's so many positive, good news stories out there um, that just aren't shared. Um, And I think one of the starting points of that is that they undervalue what it is that they're offering to begin with. So it doesn't occur to them because they were going to do it anyway. You know, I've heard that so many times. Well, we're going to do it anyway. I'm saying, yeah, but this has got real value and benefit to the community. And you should be kind of shouting about it now. But it's the other thing about, you know, how do you go about approaching that in the first place how do you get that story out there what if it's perceived in the wrong way well you're only doing that because you want to get planning and so there's this this kind of nervousness there about sharing the good news stories because of how they're going to be perceived but I think people are you know missing the opportunity because actually, unless you're directly impacted, um, you probably don't know about it. I mean, even if, for example, one of my clients has set aside some land to be a community play area, their name doesn't appear anywhere on it. I know about it because I've been involved in it. Yeah. But the wider community wouldn't know. And so it just seems like a really... And it's, it's only saying exactly what it is that they're doing. They're investing in the community. It's not more than that. They were going to do it anyway, regardless of any of the other kind of matters coming up. But they should publicise it at the time that they do it. And that's where we... We used to call it putting goodwill in the bank. But actually now, I think reputational capital better describes what it is. So it's investing in your reputation. And you don't know when two, three, five, ten years down the line, you might do something that's potentially slightly controversial. In the back of people's minds, you were that landowner who invested in that play area, which means something in people's minds. It does. I mean, naturally, if you have that kind of bank of goodwill there you've got a better chance that when you engage with the local community they've already seen that you've given something back to them and I think that's really appreciated on on our kind of rural community a child's play area used by the whole of the people in that you know village wider community that's of such benefit to them I think you can't kind of underestimate actually the goodwill towards the people that have offered that site and obviously you can't predict what's going to happen and there are going to be decisions you know development generally is unpopular Um, but I think people might be more willing to engage if they could associate this kind of positive benefits that's been brought to the community instead of this feeling people have come in here you know that they're they're just taking everything out of it for themselves you're kind of controlling the narrative but in a really gentle way because you already have them on side how do we do it how do we go about getting landowners and farmers to be better at talking about what they're doing and be proud of what they're doing in terms of 
managing the landscape, looking after the environment, producing food, providing land for much needed homes. How do we get this across to them that it's it's really important and valuable? I think we chip away at them and <laughs> we recognise, you know, if these projects are coming forward, that I say to them, you know, have you thought about publicising this? Um, you know, have you thought about press? If there's a big project coming up, speaking to to you about how to manage that process so I think there is a big role for professional advisors there is also responsibility for the the kind of rural community themselves you know we've held events before uh, where in a room there is a real willingness there to do this but a kind of collaborative effort so I think there is something to be said for landowners working together you know finding ways to um, have kind of community interest um, where it doesn't feel like you're just doing it on your own. Um, But they just need to take that first step. They need to try. I think it's getting the message out there. It's holding events. It's making sure that people know what platforms are available to them. And maybe that's us holding a, a client event, getting people in the room and saying, but there are support groups out there who will give people technical support for free there are grants out there about how to promote your business how to do marketing Um, so I think it's just taking that advice and I think it is just dripping that message through and making sure that you have the conversation at an early stage. And do you think we'll see it as a shift change I know you talked about succession planning and the next generation I recently went to an agritech event one of one of the farmers stood up and admitted he was in his 70s farming with his son who was in his 40s but he said he wants to do all this stuff you know agritech but I hold the purse strings still and so it was very difficult and he admitted he said I'm, I'm a dinosaur it's very hard for him to convince me to change anything on the farm so do you think we might see it, you know, as, as time progresses and kind of the Facebook generation, if you like, who've, been, who've grown up around social media and are aware of self-publishing, as they become the next generation of land managers and farmers, do you think that will help as well? It definitely will help. Um, people are just more natural about picking up their phone, using those different platforms. I've seen it already on, you know, the clients coming through, the farm shops that have a kind of media presence. It tends to be the next gen who are more comfortable with that side of it it um, who recognize the importance of it but I think there is going to be a shift this is not going to be a choice in the future it is hard the market is hard the weather conditions are hard there's policy change which a lot of it doesn't look that favorable so there's not going to be the same choice that we've had before if they want to get good prices for their products and future-proof their businesses then they need to take a more commercial approach and they need to think about um their kind of media and and their brand i don't think we've ever really used this word about kind of brand with um farmers and estates before um but it's coming and and they'll have to get on board with that you mentioned a couple of sort of perceived threats there what else do you see as as the biggest kind of threats to the industry over the over the coming years I think at the moment climate change is a massive threat and people are having to adapt their businesses. It is so volatile at the moment that I think it's something that we will see businesses shifting. It's at a time when the agricultural sector as a whole, it's kind of all up in the air. We're waiting to see what's going to happen next. We're waiting to see how the policy transition, um, you know, leaving the European Union, we're only really starting to feel the kind of market impacts on that now we're some way down the line we're not that much clearer at the moment about what that's going to look like so 
it's about kind of making your business as profitable as you can. It is a hard market out there. Electricity costs, fertilizer costs over the last couple of years. Um, people are going to have to make their business more commercial, more efficient, or they will lose them. You know, we are seeing that now. There, there are bigger pressures. So I think it's probably, you know, the, the changing markets, climate change and the pressures of that, and then the shift in the market trying to get the public on board. Nicola Janus-Harris from Charles and Hamlin's, thank you for joining us on Estate Matters. If you have a client you think would benefit from the specialist communications and reputation management support we've discussed in this episode, please contact us for an informal discussion via our website, corepr.co.uk. Listener.